it's kind of a early medieval setting, uh, very gritty and and dirty. There are no big cities. The, the lands where we find ourselves has been closed down for like 300 years and it's just now emerging. So we're waking up in a village and we're fed up with doing things in the village and we're thinking, hey, why don't you and I go out and see what's out there? That's basically the setting, I think. If you've been paying any attention to my Twitch feed, the YouTube channel, and this podcast, uh, you probably have figured out that I'm a huge fan of the RPG from Free League called Forbidden Lands. I got a chance to sit down with Eric Gronstrom, who is the creator of the setting. He wrote all the lore, created the world, and really brought to life one of my favorite RPG settings. We talk about his career as an author, how he got involved with gaming, his very unique thoughts and approach on preparing for a book and executing the writing of a book. What's different about writing a novel versus creating content for a game? And stick around to the end because he came back for a second interview. They currently have a Kickstarter going, so I had him come back and we talked a little bit more about what was in the Kickstarter. Anyway, sit back, relax, and enjoy my time with Eric. Third Floor Wars delivers interviews, insights, and discussions about everything hitting the tabletop. Rule books, plastic models, dice, and cards in hand. Let the gaming begin. Tabletop games let you escape and unleash grand battles and regale epic tales of adventure with your friends. If you love gaming and learning from players, designers, experts, and creators, you are in the right place. Pull up a chair. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk Podcast. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to Eric Granstrom. Now I know of Eric from his work on Free League Publishing's Forbidden Lands RPG. Listeners already know that I've kind of fallen in love with that game as well as the setting. And he is an author and world builder. So Eric, welcome to the third floor. Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, so Eric, I've had a couple writers on the show, but the majority of my guests are, you know, game developers of some of some form. Um, and usually what I like to find out is, you know, how they got into gaming. But I honestly don't know whether you're a gamer or not. Yeah, I mean, define gamer. I I, I, um, I I've played a lot of RPGs when I was younger, basically. And then I play uh, computer games still. Yeah. Uh, so I, but I'm, I don't, I'm not an avid gamer. Depends on what you mean, of course. But um, well, so that that begs the question then, Eric, is, you know, how did you end up with uh, connected with Free League? Well, yeah, you know, uh, you know about Jan Ringen, perhaps it's kind of a subsidiary to Free League. They make the game Sumbarum, you know? No, I'm not Sum- familiar Sumbarum. with it. Sumbarum, you don't know? Oh, Sumbarum, yes, 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 yeah, yes, 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 yep, yep. Uh, and uh, I work for them, actually. Gotcha. When I when I when I wrote my first novel on on an old game setting, this get, this is getting complicated. Uh, I have an old game setting which was around in the eighties and nineties, in in the first wave of Swedish role playing games. Wow, yeah, and that kind of turned into sort of a classic. You know, people still play it. So, I, and I thought, you know, I'll I'll write a novel on that setting, which I did, and I wrote the first book, and Jan Ringen published it. This was in two thousand and four. Mm-hmm. Uh, then I wrote the second book, 
and uh, they got out of business because they the, the the CEO didn't have the time to do this anymore. He had another company. Uh, so uh, I, I stood there with a novel I, I didn't know what to do with. And also <laughs> we had a game called Svavelvinter, which incidentally is uh, Free League's first game. Interesting. I don't think I knew that either. No, yeah. They were uh, sort of a... Uh, they were a, a gang of guys playing games, if I understand right. this right. I didn't know them at the time, but they were doing stuff for Jernringen. Uh, so so it, it was decided, uh, not by me, but that the Free League would, would take the Svavelv into game and continue with that one. I got another publisher uh, for the novels. So that that's uh, another uh, thing altogether. But uh, Free League uh, published the Svavelv into game. And then, you know, they've grown from there. Yeah, they sure have. I mean, yeah. they... Um... And, and, and have become professional. <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, they weren't at the time. They, they were just doing this and, you know, see, what, sure. see where, it, where it goes. Yeah, it. Um, they. I mean, it, I, I don't think we're going too far to say in the last year, year and a half that they have suddenly become a huge force um, yeah. in the industry um, and, and for good reason. So now I need to go back with you a little bit, Eric, and let's <laughs> okay. talk. Ab- let's talk about your first game setting that you created um, back in the 80s. Um, yeah, it, actually, it was in the 70s. <laughs> Get out of here. This is when uh, Dungeons and Dragons came out, the first edition, a friend of mine took it to Sweden. There were no role playing games in Sweden at all at the time. Right. He took it. He brought it here. And started to play, and I got involved in that play. It was the old, um, the Greyhawk and Chainmail supplements, sure. first edition Dungeons and Dragons. I was playing for a year, and then I, I got this idea that I'll, I'll try to be a game master. Dungeon master was the term at the time. So I wrote, wrote my own dungeon, and uh, we played with a gang for a couple of years. Then it came to Sweden as the game Drakar och Demoner, which is Dragons and Demons. More built on RuneQuest, I understand, that yep. on Dungeons & Dragons. So um, I had this material lying around, and one of my players wrote something for, for the first Drakar och Demoner. And I, he asked me, why don't you, you know, try to write something for them as well? Sure, I said. So I, I made a synopsis and sent it in to this guy, uh, a person called Anders Blixt, which is very well known in Sweden. We, we're old. Uh, we, we had a long story way back <laughs> Sorry, and uh, and they accepted it, and I wrote uh, uh, an adventure to this game called Svavelwinter. This was published in 1987. Isn't that something? And I had no idea where, where to go from there. So uh, it was received favorably, but I didn't know much about it. We had no internet in those days. Sure. So I didn't know what was happening. I, I just wrote what I liked to write. So so um, I thought... I, I'll continue this and make a series of it. So then I had to write about the the, uh, the setting, the, the the land where these adventures came from, called Tracaria. Incidentally, named from Trachea, the you know the oh the Trachea, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I'm, a, I'm yep. a trained veterinarian, so <laughs> so those names came from anatomy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah. Were you writing? So, what came first? Then was it, it was it writing for this game, or were you already, you know, uh, writing for your own writing fiction for your? I own? was actually published. Uh, oh, at that I, point, I published okay. a novel in 1980. Gotcha. Already, uh, that was uh, yeah, uh, called the smallest varuhus, the megastore of smallest sort of. 
uh, which I'm, it was fun, but I'm, it's kind of embarrassing to read it now. But still, yeah, <laughs> you have to start somewhere, right? You are 100% I was 19 correct. years old when I started Amazing. writing it. Anyway, so I, I was pretty uh, used to writing. I started made it, making cartoons when I was like five or six years. So, so I've been doing that all my life. Uh, so I, well, it was published. But, and I actually put into the agreement that I was allowed to use the Svavlvinter's Tracorian setting for writing novels. And this is what I did then 10 years later or so. So, so anyway, this uh, uh, Tracorian thing was published in five different uh, uh, leaflets, uh, adventures that, that was, were concluded. I, I got children, and it was very tough at the, at the end because I had a family and I had a job, you know, everything like that. So I actually got some people, I, I said uh, officially that I don't know if I have the time to to finalize this. And people started sending me lists with, with the names on it. You know, we request that you blah, blah, blah. And it was like 1,500 names. Oh, wow. It was really, I was, I was touched. So I bet. Yeah, and it was great because it, it, it pushed me so I... I finalized it and that is I, i'm so grateful for that now <laughs> isn't that something <laughs> yeah. very very interesting so guys the insider insight series allows me to talk to developers designers artists writers and industry insiders about their creative process and how they approach their work today i want to understand better eric's approach to creating and writing for fantastical worlds we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Howdy friends, Craig here. You deserve a new playmat. Here on the third floor, we use mats by Mars. They are scratch resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, almost free of glare and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. You pick a mat, pick a design, and then you pick an overlay, like one for Marvel Crisis Protocol, Star Wars Legion, or even Malifaux 3rd Edition. Those overlays will really speed up your deployment and make the placement of objective markers so easy. Use our promotion code in the show notes to get a 10% discount on your first order. In the notes of your order, you can even request the third floor logo on your mat for free. That makes the best mat in the business even a little better. So get some new mats, save yourself some money, and help support the show. Go to matsbymars.com. All the details are in the show notes, including the discount code. So in the first segment, we got a little bit of a taste of this, Eric, but I really want to go back um, to, uh, boy, and it sounds like, I mean, if 19 was when you were first published, I, I'd be curious when you first got a sense of, I like writing, I like writing fiction, I enjoy creating and, and, and crafting stories. When did, when did that, when did you first start realizing that? I think I realized that in school already when I was perhaps 10 years old or so, you got this, uh, uh, assignment where we were supposed to write a, a short stories during on, in three hours or so, you know, like a test. And yep. uh, sometimes they wanted you to analyze the text or you, they wanted you to 
write something about your family. I never did that. I always <laughs> wrote a fiction story and they always bought it. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah, because I thought, So you made up stuff about your family? Yeah, I, I took it as an <laughs> excuse to make up a story, a fantasy story or something. So and and at the, at the, at school we were supposed to write short stories in notebooks and I remember the, I wrote a, a story in three of those notebooks you know it, it was pretty many pages so uh, I think I, I realized at the time that this is something I like to do absolutely yeah. so once you make that realization what's next then I mean do you you don't just run out and go publish a book um, no, no no so when you decide like this is something I want to do. Um, how did how did that process start for you? I think that is the very beginning. I like to do this. If you start yeah. writing from some other uh, point of view, like I, I would like to be a known writer or I want to be rich. There are simpler paths to take, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> so also, as, as a reader, I, I read a lot of books. As a reader, if I, if I don't see that the writer loves his or her own work and has yeah. a vision about this, I stop reading the book. I, I just I have a lot of books with a with, with a marker somewhere after a third of the book. I don't want to read this anymore. So you don't care no, anymore. I, I want to see some. You know, I want to I want to see the soul and heart and brain in there, not some schedule from a management room. <laughs> the same goes for movies, of course. Uh, I, yeah, exactly, exactly. I completely agree. So I'd be curious then. Um, was it always, were you always drawn to fantasy, science fiction, and the fantastical? Um, or did you find yourself writing, migrating to that? I'm, I don't read a lot of fantasy myself. I prefer science fiction. Gotcha. Uh, I think I always write fantastic elements, but in everyday life, often. Like Kafka, uh, Borges, you know, these writers. That you take yep. what's our reality and you twist it around a little. Perhaps uh, Murakami would be a modern version of that. Yeah. And, uh, and these uh, uh, South American writers had the whole school of that uh, fantastic, what do you call it? Fantastic, uh, I don't I remember, uh, fantastic realism or something. Yes, I think that's exactly the yeah. term. Yep. So it doesn't have to be fantasy per se or science fiction. It has to be fantastic elements or rather it has to be a fantastic uh, perspective on the on something we know right Stephen King does it uh, yep. you know so so uh, yeah so it sounds like grounding it in some level of reality is, is is critical for you it is but I think realism is fiction to me you can't say anything that there is no realism to me there are only perspectives there are only interpretations of we see stuff around uh, this is the way I mean science works we see things happening and we try to explain them. The explanations right. are not the truth. The explanations are not the facts. The facts are there. You can see them in different ways. Same goes for a story. So if I write faction, uh, uh, fantasy, uh, about our, it's about our own world, but with a different perspective. That's fascinating. That's fascinating that uh, the the relativism, uh, you know, connotations to that um, is is that's cool. That's cool. So uh, your first your first work was published in 1980. Um, I think you mentioned in the first segment. Yes, is that yes. accurate? And um, for those and many many who have not read it, can you give us kind of an idea of what it was? It was uh, it was based on my. I, I used to work in a supermarket, local super, supermarket, just a mile from here, and. Um, 
these were these were my impressions from that place. So the the story is uh, a big supermarket grows and grows and grows and engulfs the whole city, perhaps the whole country. We don't know that. And somebody disappears in there, and the the protagonist goes in to find his friend, and then he sort of gets stuck in there. And he sees people living from the shelves, you know, from canned food. Uh, and it's kind of absurd. But, but it, it's <laughs> well, you in, got my interest. <laughs> it's, it's a little, it might be like mutantish, you know, if we're talking game terms here. So it's it's a, kind of a dystopia, I think, but uh, just a bit. But um, yeah, realism with a twist. So I'd be curious then, Eric, the seasoned writer goes back and reads it. And you said, you know, to a certain degree, you know, you're embarrassed a little bit. But if you go back and look at it, um, what has remained the same for you as a writer? So uh, do you see elements that you that are in that first book, um, whether it be stylistically or as an approach that that you still like that still identifies you today? Or it's just are you a completely different author now? No, no, no. I, I, I think uh... More than I want to admit, actually, I would know. <laughs> uh, first, the, the the love, the vision, and the love of the vision is there. I can see that. Yeah. Also, I like to experiment a lot with the language. Uh, and and uh, what if? What is this? Yeah. Right. And, but uh, so the, the the painful parts are really. Uh, I overstep myself sometimes to say things that I try to be funny. I try to make a nasty remark that is really not very funny uh, yeah. and things like that. So it's more in the details. I, I, I get embarrassed, but I, I can see the, I can see it coming there. <laughs> um, now, do you solely write in your native language um, or do you write in English as well? Or, or is, is it translated? I did write in English one thing, and that was for ICE, the game company. Uh-huh. It was Anders Blix, uh, the editor from, Drucker de Moner, he he had uh, he got the uh, mission to write about Europe, cyber Europe, hundred years from now. Well, I suppose it's fifty years from now then. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> okay, so I got Great Britain, and I could do whatever I liked with it. Interesting. I, I, that was really funny. But I, I I noticed, and then of course I've been working in a company that has English for uh, the business language. That uh, it takes a uh, much more time for me to write in English than in Swedish. Also, the literary quality is less. I can get a, I can get around, but it's not literary at all. So I write in. I prefer to write in Swedish now. And Free League gets the game things translated immediately before they are published, so it comes out in English and Swedish. I'd be very curious. I mean, obviously, you know. The language you choose when you're writing is is specific, right? Um, and there's certain things that are um, solely Swedish, um, bo- both in how the language is constructed and how you know the the uh, stories have been told in your language for a very long time. What is it like reading translations? Um, is it do you read them and go, wow, that talk about missing the mark? Or um, I, I I would literally have no idea what it would be like to to create a literary work and then have it translated, then going or reading that translation. What is that? What is that like to do that? Well, uh, the game uh, material I write has been translated into English. My novels yeah. have not. They have been translated okay. into Danish, but that's pretty similar to Swedish. Right. Uh, the game material I have read translated, I have no problem with that at all. Yeah. It's, it's different. But again, I, I think it has to be. 
a translator has to be given some freedom. Otherwise, it, it doesn't get that good. The same thing when I work with the map people or the illustrators for the games. They, they interpret things in other ways than I would. Yep. Which is fine. With Often I get surprised in a good way. And I like that they, they, they do what, what they want to do. It's the same thing here. I want to see the vision. I want to see their heart in it. Mm-hmm. And I'm not that picky with it. I know the right way to do things. I know one way to do things, but yeah. Well, and then, and then I would imagine too have you know it becomes a collaboration as opposed to just a translation or a, a, or yeah. a copy, yeah, right? Absolutely. There, there's got to be benefit yeah. to that, especially if you have built up a language and a trust with with the artist. Yeah, I love to work with people that are very good at something I don't. I'm not good at. For yeah. instance, we made. A, I don't know if you know that, but I I also wrote the text for a metal album musical album. Yeah, I did know that. Yeah. And I, I, I'm really happy with those texts. And I, I got to work with uh, Christian Elvestown, who, who's a very professional, a good musician. He's a singer and he plays all the instruments and everything. And that was really good because he is a perfectionist and I'm kind of a perfectionist, I suppose. So we were haggling a lot and, you know, arguing. And we say, I never want to work with you again. And I was like, hey, step back, step back, take it easy, take it easy. We both want the same thing, right? We want this to be very right. good. Okay, so we got back again. <laughs> so so writing, writing lyrics like that, what is that? Did, did I mean, did... Did he start you off by saying, I want a song about this? Or did you just sit down and say, I'm no, going to no, write no, some songs? It's, it's a funny story because I used to Google Svavl Winter, which was the, the name of my first game uh, and the first novel, which are pretty well known in these circles. And I, I, I saw that there was a metal band called Svavl Winter. And it's a word that you don't come up with if you don't know where. Right. You know. So uh, so I, I got in touch with this guy. And it turned out, he, well, he's an old gamer, of course. <laughs> so we thought, ah, it was a cool word. <laughs> and we got to talk, and then we agreed that let's let's do an album together. I write the text, Isn't that you do the music. And and um, the setting in the on the album are all from my novels, from from this polar wow. island of Marjura where this takes place. So you can, they're on Spotify, and they're also actually, there's a good film on YouTube. You can link it, I suppose. That's exactly what I'll do is I'm going to have a link to both the Spotify and that for those of that you want to do it. Um, so writing in your, you know, obviously in your late teens, early 20s into your 30s um, are, are met with challenges, right? As you're starting off and starting to learn the craft and things. Looking where you are now, um, are there things that you feel um, you've conquered? So when you think about, you know, what makes writing difficult, um, things that time and practice has, has allowed you to, to finally get much better at? I think you, you, yeah, I think I've learned the hard way, as I suppose most writers do. Uh, I saw, uh, you know, I, re- I read books on how to write, Stephen King's books mm-hmm. on, on writing or what it's called, and some other ones. Uh, very interesting books, and you should read them if you want to write. But you have to be clear that, this is what ha- works for them, not necessarily right. what works for you. For instance, Stephen King and I have very different views on this. Obviously, he's very successful, so I, I, I'm not. I'm sure. not saying that he's wrong. It just it doesn't work for me. For instance, yep. he says you shouldn't have a plan. You shouldn't you shouldn't know what will happen in your book because it gets boring. Well, that doesn't work for me at all. And I've seen it happen so many times that you start off with a good idea, you write hundred pages, and then you don't know where you are. And so you leave it behind and you start something else. So I don't think that's a good advice, simply. I could not agree more. And I'm, this is going to make some of my listeners angry. It is my biggest criticism of reading Stephen King um, to the point where 
um, I've stopped. Um, and I've, I've always said what I wish I could have is I wish I could have Stephen King and Clive Barker in the same room yeah. and have Stephen King come up with the ideas and, and the premises and, the, and, and then let Clive Barker write it. Because I think uh, yeah. Stephen King is a better, better at that than Clive Barker and Clive Barker is a better writer than Stephen King. <laughs> so that's yeah, my, possibly, that's my yeah. marriage. So no, I completely agree. Um, and it's, it, it's funny. It's, it, it can be so blatant in Stephen King that as a reader, I can tell, I can tell that he's doesn't know where he's headed. He doesn't know where he's going. Yeah, I tried to read this book uh, called under the dome, which is yeah. also a television series, I believe. And it's just a great idea, which, which right. he, he usually has great ideas. Phenomenal. But it, at some point, I just lose interest. I start to flip pages and see, okay, yep. so what happens to this guy? Okay, he died. Uh, do I care? No. Um, and it, it, to me, it, it just loses focus. and It's not interesting anymore. So I stop reading it. I think it's also why, and this is not the Why We Hate Stephen King podcast, but it's also why I think my favorite writings of Stephen King are his short stories, because he has less time to lose himself. Like, I think Apt Pupil, which was in... Um, uh, the same, it was the same collection as uh, The Body, which is what Stand By Me was based on. And After People was made into a pretty good movie. But that's that's my favorite story of his. And I think it's absolutely phenomenal. Um, so he he's definitely got it in him. And, you know, it's a preference thing. There's people that absolutely love uh, The Meandering. But anywho, Lou, so, so now we get a little bit of insight and maybe to your process then. So are you someone who, before you write paragraph one, do you, do you outline? Do you, what is, what is your first approach before you start writing? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think that is what Stephen King is trying to address as well. I don't have nothing against Stephen King. Okay? Nor do I. Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, uh, he wants you to, to burn for your vision or idea which is what I requested in the first place, right? Yeah. So the, the problem is if you start writing from an idea and just go on, you will get stuck. You can see it in Game of Thrones, right? Yeah, good, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I think you should have that, that enthusiasm and vision that Stephen King wants you to, but I think it's good to have a plan as well. The thing with me is I get easily bored, and if I get bored, I write worse. Yeah. So if I know too much about my own story, I'm not surprised. I'm not curious. It's just just standard writing. It doesn't shine at all. So so what I, I came up with with a with a, a way of working that that I I, I have sort of uh, achieved after twenty or thirty years, and that <laughs> is like working like an orient you know orienteering, mm -hmm. where you run is I think it's called that in in English. It's when you run around in the woods. And you okay, have, yeah, you have yeah, stations yeah. you have to find. You only know where the stations are, but you have to find the shortest route there and the fastest yes. route there. Yeah, so, so, I don't know what it's called, but I know what you're yeah, talking yeah, about. Yeah, Sweden is pretty big in Sweden. It's uh, orienteering. Anyway, I try to plan that way. So I know, uh, I know the milestones. I'm going there. So I'm always writing towards something, but I don't, don't, don't want to know the way there. I want to be free to go whatever way I choose when I'm writing. So when I sit down in the morning, I start writing. Okay, I'm, I'm on my way there. I know that. I know. I, I usually do, when I start a chapter, I usually do a short introduction where I write, okay, this is where we are. This is exposure that has to be done in this chapter. We have to meet this person. You have to get to know this thing. And the end, the exit of the chapter is this. Then, then I start writing. And then I want to surprise myself. Right, right. And, and so what drives that for you then? Um, so you've got you've got your signposts, right? You know, you know, your targets, you know, your your yeah. your milestones, as you put it. Um, 
what drives you to those points? Is it, are do you consider the characters are driving you there? The plot is driving you there? The destination is drawing you there? I think the destination is drawing me there. Got it. And then it's really funny when the, when the characters surprise you. For instance, I had one scene where two main characters that had, had both been described extensively before this, they meet in the fourth of four book. They meet on a ship. And one, I have one of these characters say one sentence, the first thing he says, and I realize that this other person will, will consider that a, a threat. Right. Which wasn't the intention. Yep. So she gets very defensive and says something nasty back, and then they're not friends for the rest of the story. So, and that turned out at the very point when I wrote it. I, it surprised me. Oh, well, they don't get along. Okay. <laughs> Well, it's, and I've heard this from many writers that at some point the characters become their own thing. In fact, uh, I think it was Robert E. Howard talked about, you know, he started writing Conan, then eventually Conan wrote Conan. Yeah. And all he did was listen to him, um, which I, I think is interesting. And and, and it's got to be exciting when when they become real enough to surprise you. Yeah, it is. It is. Very, very interesting. And, and also sometimes a, a, a character that was just a filler turns out to become very important for the story. So, so in, my, in these four fantasy books that are only available in Swedish, unfortunately, uh, there are some classical heroes from start, but they sort of uh, fade back, and some women take the, the part in these last books. And not, not out of political reasons, just turned out that way. Right, that's where the yeah. story went, yeah. right? It's, it's, and... Does, is that a conflict for you, though? Because that wasn't the plan, or does no, it just I have happen no problem slowly? With that. I love it. I yeah. love it. Sometimes you get stuck, of course, but you can always fix it. That's my experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, you've written so much now, Eric. And let's play a stupid game that's often played. You could go back to the early '80s and sit down with 19-year-old Eric and go, "Look, um, I know it's ahead of you, um, and..." Uh, you're going to don't don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And you're going to be a better writer. What, what would you say to young Eric? <laughs> I think it's more important. What would a young Eric say to me? He would say, go <laughs> fuck off. I'll show you. <laughs> he wouldn't even listen he to you. He would definitely do just the contrary. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> that's great. Um, well, all right, let me rephrase it. Then. <laughs> if I've got a 19 year old listener who enjoys writing, um, is there is there some pitfalls that uh, that you had to just, you know, work your way through that uh, maybe you can at least give them the heads up on? Yes, there are several pitfalls. I think you have to fall into some of these pits in the first place which is the only way to learn. And especially if you're very stubborn and, uh, and enthusiastic and convinced you know best. Okay, so let them fall in and see this didn't work for you. Uh, I think what you need to do, the best advice, I, I believe, is that uh, find your own voice, find your what you love to write about. Do not look at others that have been successful because it's all, probably it's already too late to, to copy them anyway. Because yep. it, it's moved when you're when you're finished, it's moved on. Moved on, and and uh, I really I, I have a very I really don't like copying. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like they say, amateurs copy and and pros steal, right? Right. Yeah, that's the same. 
I think I, I like to be part of a tradition. So I like to steal in a way I can take this that you started and I do something else with it. Because, of course, nothing comes out of your pen that you haven't received some way or the other. So, so it's, but, but don't try to uh, copy, try to do something. I would have done it this way. Well, do it then. Yeah. Yeah. And I would imagine, Eric, that the only way to find your voice is you got to write. You've got to. You got to write. You got to write. And you have to think about what do I want to write about? You should not think this will sell or this. That's not the way I do it, but then I'm not rich. <laughs> but, I mean, you can do that. That's a profession. I used to work in the in the PR and um, commercial. I, I was actually CEO for a commercial. What do you what do you say? Advertising agency. Advertising agency yep. in Stockholm. And you can do that and, and make a lot of money. Then you then you don't write because you love to write. You write to to uh, achieve a specific thing that they pay you for, right? You want to sell this or that and, or get this public relations thing going. You can do that, but that's not, the, that's not literary writing to me. That's good. Choose that if you like. But if you want to write literary thing, you're speaking to others. You're speaking to the readers one by one. Well, when you think about your time being a commercial writer um, and a writer, you know, for hire, a mercenary of sorts, yeah. Um, is there things that um, made you a better literary writer for going absolutely, through that absolutely. process? I mean, you're working with professionals when you do that. Right. And you meet a lot of good people that know a lot of things you can learn. So you can do that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And, and it's, I mean, I don't have anything against that, nor Stephen King. I mean, it's, it's a good thing to do. Right. But, uh, but uh, I also, for instance, wrote for the computer game uh, industry. I, I participated in a couple of games. And that is a very big industry with a lot of money in it. It's a big, big investment to, to do a, make a computer game. So you're very, uh, it's very strict. Uh, to get specifications, strict specifications is often a blessing. It's easy to write good things when you, this is a limit, this is what you should do. But the bad thing about writing for computer games to me was that we made the whole concept, brilliant people, you know, concepts, artists and things. And then it comes an order from New York saying, we're, we're dropping this. And we don't, we don't get an explanation. Oh. Oh, sorry, you're supposed to do this. We're bringing in this team of this instead. And you, you don't know why, because this is great stuff. That's brutal. So, so, so <laughs> that's, but that's, that's part of that business, I suppose. It's like the film industry, I, I think. So uh, the good thing about being a writer, you can write whatever you like. You, you're responsible to yourself. Right. Right. And, and, and I would imagine, you know, for those that would someday want to make a living at it and things like that, um, if that's your goal, I'm, I'm hearing that that won't happen necessarily, that, you, that, the, that the, the path there is first you're going to have to write for yourself and then, and then that's the only way you'll find an audience. Does that sound accurate? It does, but still, I mean, even if you do everything right, perhaps one in a hundred will be able to live. It's like planning for a little kid. I'm going to be a professional football player. Right. You can have that ambition. But it won't work for perhaps one in hundred. It will work for. So if you're aware of that, sure. It, I think you should write because you love it, and and if you make money from it, that's good. That, that's a, a fringe benefit. So I'd be curious then, Eric. Um, it, it, I don't think I get the impression that you wouldn't consider book sales and things like that a measure of success. How do you measure your success as a writer? As you as you are creating things and you look back on them, um, how do how do you measure where you are? 
uh, well, of course, I, I have no nothing against money either. <laughs> so, so it's, <laughs> if, it's, if it sells, that's great. Sure. But I want to I want to be able to read what I write with pride. Yeah. Some years after I wrote it, then, then I'm happy. And also, of course, if if I meet uh, ri- uh, readers that love what I do, uh, that is my. Uh, that's my reward, I think. Not not standing on on a on a scene, you know, in in front of a crowd. I never really liked that, but I, I like to sit down at a table with somebody and talk about my books, and they love them, and we can talk about details and how could we done this. Yeah, it, it is. And also, I must have, say one thing: I wrote these games in Swedish. Then in the eighties and nineties, I knew nothing. What happened? I wrote them and they disappeared, and I didn't know anything about it. And then it turned out very much later that. These games have been very important to a lot of people. Yeah. And I meet them now. Now these people are 45, 50 years, the players. I meet them everywhere. They can be doctors, professors, politicians, plumbers, whatever. Yeah. I, mean, I meet them everywhere. And some come, come to me and they say, this was very important for, for me when I was younger. And it sort of formed my life. Wow. And some guy comes say, this saved my life when I was really feeling bad and I had drug problems. And I, what? What better award can I reward? No kidding. I mean, I like but this happens. That's got to be overwhelming when that <laughs> yeah. happens. So, so to, to be able to give people, which I wasn't even aware of at the time, that's a blessing too. I bet. I bet. So, guys, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to get to really what I really, really, really want to talk about, which is my new favorite RPG setting, Forbidden Lands. We'll be right back. Right now is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content you're already getting for free. They'll go on and explain that by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we commit to not interrupting your episode of Tabletop Talk with such a plea. We pledge not to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month. Even if there's a link in this show's description, and there is, we won't ask you to click it and become a patron. We won't spend time yammering about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting those episodes without ad breaks, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode. We needed to clarify that we wouldn't do this type of solicitation. Time for a quick shout out to our most recent patrons. A big thank you goes out to Peter Sojnek, Nathan E. Hoyle, Jimmy CZ, Wayne Peacock, Oliver Borden, Zachary Wills, J. Douglas Nielsen, Patrick Healy, Ifrit V. Diablo, Greg Packman, Eric Conrad, and Joe Root. Because of them and the 100 plus other patrons, we're able to put out content to you on a regular basis. Thank you. Hi there, this is Owen from the Nova Open. And I am a $5 patron of Third Floor Wars because I love supporting the whole Malifaux community. I want to help Craig and the whole Third Floor Wars team continue making the fantastic content that gets me through my daily commute. You should join me in supporting the show. Just pause this episode, head to patreon.com and search Third Floor Wars or grab the link in the show notes. See you there. During the break, I warned Eric um, that he's going to have to put up with a bit of a fanboy here. Um, I have, um, you know, I've been 
playing RPGs for a long time. Uh, I've read a lot of fantasy. I've read a lot of science fiction. Um, but there was something going on with Forbidden Lands, Eric, and I have not quite put my finger on it. But for some reason, it captured my imagination. And as soon as, I don't know, maybe th- three paragraphs into the setting, I knew I was going to I knew I was going to live in this world. I knew I was going to get players and we are going to play in this world because it's fascinating. Um, so I guess very quickly, um, because we're going to dive uh, deeper into it. Um, and, you know, I'm tempted to describe your world to you, which sounds like a terrible <laughs> idea. So for those listening that aren't familiar with Forbidden Lands, what do you think is an easy way to kind of to set up the set, set it up for people? It's kind of a early medieval setting. Uh, very gritty and and dirty. There are no big cities. The the lands where we find ourselves has been closed down for like 300 years, and it's just now emerging. So we're waking up in a village, and we're fed up with doing things in the village, and we're thinking, hey, why don't you and I go out and see what's out there? That's basically the setting, I think. It It is, and it... Um, well, I can't, I'm trying to figure out where to start, Eric, so let's start here. <laughs> It is a perfect setting for the game that we play, right? So I look at how the game mechanically works and the setting is perfect. What I don't know is who influenced whom or did it was it just a happy marriage? So where did we start? Did we start with Eric has the setting in his head and then, oh, wow, it could be a game or was it approached saying, Eric, we need a game setting? Yeah, what yeah. Was first? I should not take the credit for, for this. I mean... It's, it's the other way around that, that you said that, uh, Eric, we need this game. Can you write the setting? So I got specifications. And the thing is, there were no rules when I wrote the setting, nor the campaign Raven's Purge. Uh, I knew there would be uh, the Mutant Year Zero machine uh, engine, but I, I didn't know that one anyway. So I, I basically wrote the setting and the hooks and the history and everything. Uh, without knowing anything about the rules. I, I got the specification. It has to be greedy. It has to be this. It has to be that. And I had to use all the elves and dwarves and those things. Because, as you probably are aware of, it, the game was first uh, stretch goals to another to a Kickstarter. We had this Swedish artist called Nils Gullikson, who, who, who made the illustration for that old Drakkar the Mourner uh, game in the 80s and 90s in Sweden. And there were lots of, uh, I think about 300,000 Young people perhaps played them in those days. were huge. Mm-hmm. And uh, his, his illustrations were pretty much uh, what people remember visually. Yep. So I got the, all, uh, and they made an art book of, of, of his art. And I got those, uh, his art, and they said, make a fancy game out of this. You can do whatever you like, basically. It right. has to be Greek and all that. But, so I got these uh, pictures that you can see in, in, the, in the books, in the game. In the the playbook and the game master's book, most of them are from Nils Gullikson. If you you can see in the in the tag, it says eighty five or something. Yeah, and then we have some very good artists that have made the same style illustration where we didn't have any. So uh, I sat down. Okay, so we have elves. They what do we want to do? I, I, I Tolkien is obviously uh, uh, you know <laughs> you can't get around him, and most of this came from him. But I, I, I didn't want to do that. I, I thought, okay, we have elves. They, they live forever, basically. Why would they give a shit about us? About the meat people? You're right. rotting us. You're, you're born rotting. 
If, if you <laughs> annoy me, I just walk away for 200 years and then you're gone. <laughs> I don't have to do anything with you. <laughs> I don't have to kill you. You're going to kill yourself. <laughs> so so, so I, I'm, to me, they became sort of uh, fascistic in, in a way that they think everybody else doesn't matter. We matter right? because we're eternal. So why would we care about things? And they get all this uh, strange uh, interest, like I can sit down and watch a tree, you know, grow and fall, the leaves fall and it withers and falls. Okay, that was a nice uh, sen- century. Now I'll do something else. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So that, those were the else. And then uh, I tried to get twists on all these uh, old cliches, basically. And some, some are better than others. Uh, and I li- like them pretty much all of them. Like the orcs have become the most likable kin in this yeah. game, in a way, because they have been bad, treated badly by the others, and now they're trying to prove that they can also be civilized people. Eric, I was shocked, um, and this this goes across so much of the work, but I was shocked specifically about the the uh, the kin, the different the dwarves, the elves, the halflings, how it was familiar. And something brand new. Every one of them had a twist. And the one I was going to bring up was the orcs. Um, how, you know, when we look at Tolkien and we look at how other people have portrayed orcs, or if you even look at, you know, classic Dungeons and Dragons or Fantasy World, how orcs are treated, your, your take on them is, is ultimately very, very different. And it puts them in a different place. Um, uh, the other one, and I'll never forget the first time I read it, is Halflings. Yeah, the- um, I read that the first time and I was like, holy cow, this, I have never read anything like this, let alone about a halfling. Um, so for those people that uh, want to learn, this is not their father's halfling. Well, talk to me about the halflings and where that came from and what they are. <laughs> well, the thing is the halflings, of course, the Tolkien halflings are very jolly right. and they are very, yeah, they're sort of lovable and cute. And they, they, if they are, if they are bad, they're not really bad. They are just misguided or something, you know? So I, I, right. I, I couldn't stand that. It's, it's, I can't stand it. <laughs> it's nothing is that jolly for real. So I thought, okay, there must be something behind this, right? So, so what I did was uh, I came up with this idea. I also had these um, uh, goblins, which are kind of the same size. So I came up with the idea, what if the goblins and the halfling were the same, but they don't want to acknowledge it? So, so, so the thing in the game is that when a, when a halfling woman or a goblin woman gets pregnant and they want to give birth, they go to specific villages where they gather and they hand out the right children to the right people. And then everybody goes home and don't talk about this anymore. Uh, and the, the, the halflings are ashamed of this and they don't want anything to do with the goblins. So they have to put up this jolly facade. They go out in, in the inns and they have sing songs and then they go home and beat their children and, and they accuse their wives of being unfaithful and hide away old grandpa who's an alcoholic <laughs> and stuff like that. And, and the, the adventurers who are halflings then are portray, portrayed like, I can't stand this anymore. This is so hypocritical. I just got to yeah. I want to live for real. You know, I can't stand this. <laughs> so, and, and people really like that. <laughs> Oh, it's it's incredible. It's incredible. And again, because and I think that um, now that I'm speaking to you and kind of talking through this, I think that that's what captured me about Forbidden Lands is how familiar it was until it wasn't. (laughs) And and then it was something new. (laughs) Yeah. So I would be curious then uh, the the red mist, which is the red mist is appears and that's what prevented people from traveling for four or five generations. Right. Yeah. Um, And it comes up at night and uh, you do a wonderful job of 
of specifying the red mist, but also leaving a lot to the uh, players in the game master to make some decisions about the red mist, which I really love um, uh, when games do that. Um, was that something that was given to you that they said, look, we're, they can't travel like people in this world can't travel for 300 years, Eric. So now if you figure out how to do it or was that something you came up with? Now, the truth was this, uh, that I wrote the whole setting basically to, to 80% ready or something. And then they told me that uh, we, we don't want to have, we want the land to be closed down for some centuries. Okay. So what do we come <laughs> up with that? So the red mist was, came up as, as a solution to something that was required. I had not planned it from start, but it was kind of handy to, to do that. So, and I like the way uh, that the, the thing is with the halflings or the elves or the red mist people, I don't know how much we spoil in here, by the way. Is that okay? Oh, I think it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 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 Because the red mist are demons that are gaseous, right? And they take form in the night and they kill everybody that doesn't feel at home. And nobody knows that. They just think they are murderers. But the thing is, they are more like cleaners from another world. And they don't, they are here and they, they think, okay, this person doesn't feel at home. They should die. So let's kill them. So that's what they do. And also, this is a key to why some kins and people are not attacked by the red mist, because they feel at home in the woods or, or, or all over the place. And for instance, the Rust Brothers, which are a religious group, they think they call this red mist that the goddess breath. And then, of course, they're at home, it is. So, the, so they are not attacked. And they make a big thing out of that, of course, but they don't really know what they're doing. So, so the thing is, what I was coming to was that you should, as a writer, game writer, also as a fiction writer, you should respect everybody in your book. You should have nobody, very few uh, beings uh, are evil because they like to be evil or just to destroy. They have some kind of incentive. They want something. Right. So, so that's what you should think about for every creature you, you make. What does this person or creature yet really want to do? Well, and this gets to your concept of, you know, uh, reality and the fact that I would imagine that every Rust brother thinks they're the hero of their absolutely, story. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, if, that, if, they, um, if they kill off some people, well, they should be weeded out. That's their way. Right. I mean, it's, it's like Nazis, right? You, 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 I don't like Nazis more than anybody else. Well, can, that's good. But, I'm glad but, you said yeah, that. Yeah, but the thing is, <laughs> it doesn't help you to demonize them. You, you want to understand how could they think this? What were driving them? Because that's yep. the only way of understanding our world and prevent it. So, so, and also it's more, much more interesting if you understand if these are right. believable. Yep. So, yep. And, and yeah. it, and I think, um, boy, I'm glad we're having this interview because I'm like, I'm, I'm understanding why I like it so much better <laughs> okay. now, Eric, because I don't think I realized that, that, that I've always liked that in, in, in what I read, right? I, I like I like my characters to be complicated. As a person who runs role playing games, I like my characters to be complicated there too. Um, uh, pure evil is not very interesting. No, um, any more than pure good is as no. well. It's it's the it's what's in between um, that that's interesting and 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 keeps us um, <laughs> keeps us grounded. Um, has there been so the overarching story? Um, and this I don't really want to spoil too much. Uh, but there is an overarching story. There's the before uh, the Red Mist, and yeah. now that the Red Mist is lifted, what's happened after? And and there's a story arc that isn't finished yet, but but is, you know, 400 some odd years old um, coming into it. Was that 
an early thing for you um, did, that you came up with um, the the idea of the wars and the invasions and the sor- you know the sorcerer was that uh, something that was there from the very beginning or is that something that uh, happened over time? I, I think I wrote the history pretty early and it's very extensive as you can see and I can understand that it's probably a little too long, but still it, it lays the ground <laughs> for my own thinking. So it's important to me at least when I when I write something complex, I write to do complex things. The thing is, you have to fill it up with the stuff that is right. not related. So that's what I, I try to just, you know, throw things in there. And then I start to uh, pick, pick in these, all these things. What is this? And what, where, where does this fit? It doesn't fit. And, and then I start to see patterns and I can build. It, it sort of builds itself mm-hmm. at a certain complexity. You start to see patterns in it. And that's what I'm doing now. And, and as you know, I'm writing the Asleen expansions to the country, to the West, <laughs> I have problems with this, to the West of, of Raveland, Raveland. And uh, they w- will get a twist of the of the world history that perhaps it wasn't that like they told you. Yeah. Perhaps it was this, oh, this way. And the thing is, I don't know if that's, perhaps that's not the truth either. Perhaps that's right. one aspect of it. The thing is, I, I'm looking at, I'm very interested in history, in our, our world history. That's where I take my main inspiration. And if you if you read a lot about history, you will see that chance and misunderstanding and uh, very strange things. It's not planning that does history. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't. Th- I don't think I knew that you were working on West of Ravenland. I, um, you didn't. It's, it's didn't. almost finished, actually. Oh my goodness! I'm yeah, super excited. I'm putting my last hands to it now. So it's, oh. it's you know it's this land, Asleen, uh, uh that is uh, where the riding peoples come from in, in Ravenland. And they have this old structure of, and it turns out, well, it wasn't that simple either. You know, they, they think they have this history, but it might not be true. <laughs> right, right. Oh, so, that's exciting. Yeah. So what, when you finish Forbidden Lands, you've, you've, you, the pen is down, you've sent it out, it's going yeah. to be published, it's going to be worked on. When you look back on it now, and you've had to, right, as you've revisited the world yeah. with, with, with Ravens, Purge, and as well as what you're working on now, um, do you look back on some of it and go, you know what, that that's pretty good. Like, like is there something where you just go, you know what, I I, I really kind of I killed it here, I nailed it here. <laughs> what do you, what are you proud of, or, or or what do you look back on, and you're, you're surprised that it even came out of your pen? <laughs> right. No, no, I'm pretty I'm pretty uh, happy with it actually. The thing is, I'm I had started writing another novel that uh, didn't get get anywhere. So now I decided I would write a novel set in the Ravenland setting. So once I, I, I send in this Asleen expansion, I will start writing, writing a novel. And it will be the first of several novels, if, you know, inshallah. And, uh, and uh, I'm really excited about that. And that excitement, I think, is a sign that I'm happy with the world. Yeah. So there are a lot of things there. And, and there's a lot of potential. I think that's the most important thing for me. Also that, uh, that players and game masters see potential to expand. And I see a lot of expansions coming, and I like that. Yeah. Well, that was so, going to so be I, that yeah. was going to be my next question. Um, you know, I've heard designers talk about some of their favorite moments is creating something and then handing it over to the players and watching the players Absolutely. do with it. And I'd be, can you Absolutely. talk to me about what that's like, and uh, maybe some examples of where you went, wow. Yeah, yeah. I follow some some gaming online. They're, they're uh, live playing. 
And I really love it. I, and I know what's coming. And I can see, okay, so now the billion. Now it, it'll be, I love to see what they will do when they encounter this. <laughs> I think it's in a ring my hand. Yeah, you know, so expecting yeah. things, bringing out the popcorn. <laughs> so, no, I really love it. When, and especially I love it when people come up with something really clever or original built on what I do, but taking it somewhere where I didn't see. I love that. Uh, I've been having a ton of fun <laughs> with it. I um I have been running it for my local players, um, but I'll be soon. And by the time this comes out, a little already started. I'm going to also do a live live stream um, of Forbidden mm. Lands with a different group. And I had one of my players who are local that are playing Forbidden Lands with me say, you know, am I allowed to watch the live stream because uh, yeah. I don't want to spoil the game? And I said to him, I said, you're going to be amazed at how different the games will be even though it's still yeah. me running it, I said, and that's what's great about the game. And that's what's great yeah. about the setting. And you might see things that you think are spoiled in one game, and it might be completely different in our game. Because, yeah. and I, again, I don't think I realized this until we spoke. I got a sense of multiple truths. And, and, and you know, like, even if I make this the same world for both for both play, sets of players, it's going to, it's going to be different. Um, even, even encountering some of the same characters um, on there. Is there, um, so you, you finish that. And then at some point someone says to you, we want Raven's Perch, um, which for those listening um, was kind of an, I don't know. I don't quite know how to call it because it's not a module. It's not an expansion. It's not a new setting. Um, and part of that's the nature of how the game is created. Um, but it, it's a build up of of the world right so it's yeah. it's a I, I wrote to them pretty much simultaneously actually oh so did you a, okay it's kind of uh i didn't first do the setting and then do raven's perch I, got it i interacted there so so it's it's a specific i mean if you're i write another campaign the world is already there so it, it won't be the same right now now in this new expansion new stuff about the world will be added obviously right <laughs> but uh, raven's perch was written pretty much got with, it Got it, got it. They were they were together. That that yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Now I have to ask then about Bitter Reach, which is another uh, book that Free League put out that covers what's north of of Raven's yeah. Land. Um, were you a part of that? Um, and if so, how much? And almost not at all. I I, I know Magnus Yetter very very well. We we know each other. We met and so on, and we discussed things. And I I gave some input on names and small stuff and he that, that's his creation actually so and I, I understand people are very happy with it so it, well it's excellent um ha, have you looked at it i'd be curious to yeah, know yeah, hey, they were here I, and i'm actually trying to follow the same structure now when i'm writing the next expansion to yeah to get some order and things. so, so what, is, what what is it like having another writer write in your world no it's not my word it's, it's not my world at all it's it's a it's the players and the game master's world, and it's Magnus Setter's world, and it's my world, and it's Free League's world. Yeah. So I, I see myself as one participant in this project. Interesting. So, so and I, I can reply to things that are said there, or, or things that I hear from players, like, oh, that's a good idea. Can I steal this? Sure. <laughs> and they, they love that, of course. I'm sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I don't see it as my world. I, I sort of make, I give my contribution to it. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So guys, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I want to take advantage of the fact that I've got someone here who writes what I think is a very tough genre, and that is fantasy and horror, and maybe it's the same genre, maybe they're two separate <laughs> things. I want to talk about what it's like to uh, to write in, uh, write in that style. I'm not sure what I'm going to ask. We'll take a quick break and we'll find out. 
are so many online retailers, it can be hard to find one that is trustworthy, has great prices, along with some reliable customer service. On the third floor, we love ordering our gaming goodies from Gadzooks Gaming. Their selection of terrain, miniatures, dice, custom decor, and conversion bits are curated for gamers by gamers. You'll find they have what you need and what you didn't know you needed to take your gaming fun to the next level. If you mention Third Floor Wars in the cart notes of your order, you'll also get a free gift. And you'll help support the podcast. Check out gadzooksgaming.com and mention Third Floor Wars on checkout to get that free gift. So if um, someone comes to you, Eric, and they say, um, do you write horror? Do you write fantasy? Um, do, do you what is your answer to that? Or is it neither both or because there's elements <laughs> yeah. I, I read? I, I, yeah, I read. The thing is, this: if into John, uh, concerning genres, uh, they have a certain uh, you have certain expectations when you read them as a writer or a constructor of games. It's good if you know these expectations. That does not mean that you have to follow them, or, or you have to handle them in some way. You can you can play them that people think this is what happens, but then there's a twist that you didn't see coming because you were expecting the genre. So I, I more see it as uh, as a writer. I'm not really that much into the genre at all. It's it's some it's a label somebody slaps on what I do afterwards. Right. Anyway, it's like this uh, this metal album we. We wrote, we, we, there were discussions, is this dark metal? Is it death metal? Yeah. It's not religious at all. It's death metal. Well, you know. so, so it's more, well, you put whatever label you want on it. I don't care. We yeah. do the thing. I think it's, it's good. And um, you call it whatever you like. Well, so as a writer then, what draws you to things that end up being labeled, um, you know, fantasy, labeled horror, later, labeled death metal? I, I'm um, drawn to... Uh, some kind of vision and an interesting idea or setting, and then it's label after that. Got it. I, I don't. I'm not drawn to the label at all. Right. Right. Well, I guess what I'm wondering though is, um, what what are the elements that you are drawn to that leads people to later label them that way? I think, like 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 I said about realism, I don't think it exists. I think you can uh, picture the world much better actually in a fantasy way because you can then choose what aspects to to um, investigate if you if, for instance it's a very popular genre right now in re- writing fiction in sweden perhaps it also in the u.s i don't know that you write fiction about historical events or historical persons and uh, those can be very ambitious there yeah. i know there are for instance uh, con ingolden you know him i don't No, he, he wrote a, a series of uh of books on Julius Caesar from when Julius Caesar is a kid until I suppose he's killed. I didn't read them. So I started on the first one and I, I know pretty much about the Roman Republic and Empire because I read a lot of books about it. And I got furious because he's he is he is using a historical setting and changing stuff that are just wrong. Yeah. And I read an interview with him and he said, well, you're a historical teacher. How can you do that? Well, you know, I had to change this because of dramatical reasons. Well, Julius Caesar is more dramatic than anything you can come up with anyway. So right. why did you do that? I, I think it's dangerous to give the impression that I'm telling the truth. There is no truth. There are facts, and then we 
interpret them and put choose what facts we put forward in the first place. I'm not saying like you know that there are alternative facts like some right right political right, right. person say. I'm saying this is what happened, but we can see it from different different perspectives. And one way to see perspectives in our own lives is through fantasy. Yep. For instance, Tolkien with the the the, the Lord of the Rings series about the to overcome your fears and things like that. Friendship. Right. It's about the Second World War experiences, mm-hmm. things like that. It's not less realistic than a sort of realistic, uh, something claiming to be realistic. Because even if you do something realistic, you still pick out the facts and what you write and also wh- how you describe these things. I had, mm-hmm. a, I had a blog and I wrote this, unfortunately, in Swedish. I had two books about the dictator Sala, which pre was uh, before C- Julius Caesar and the Roman. And one was trying to make Sulla a good person, the other one a demonic person. And I took the exact same event and I said, this is how it described in this book, this is how it described in that book. Note the adjectives they are using, which are pushing the agenda. Right. And that was actually picked up by some historical teachers in Sweden. Can we use this? In, because it's a very good example. And yeah. the, the thing is, you have to be very careful when you say this is realistic, because... In 50 years from now, somebody will claim this is not realism. This is mm-hmm. your, the way you saw these things in your time, right? Yep. Well, well I'm losing myself. But we're, we're, you're asking me about fantasy and genre. It's, it's, a, it's a way to use to describe something that I, I want to talk about. Well, and it, I have to say that my favorite science fiction and my favorite fantasy does exactly what you're saying, which is it doesn't. It's not telling a fantasy story. It's not telling a sci-fi story. It's using those as a setting and as a tool to tell a story, a universal story. It's uh, an example I often give when I try to explain this to people is Isaac Asimov. I thought Asimov did a very wonderful job, like uh, the robot series uh, from Asimov. Those are detective stories that happen to be set in science fiction. Um, And, and, uh, you know, there's times where I'll pick up some science fiction and I'll pick up some fantasy and I can tell that they're just writing the genre. And yeah. Yeah, it's like doesn't June, June, for instance, it's very political. Yeah. And, so. and that's why it's endured. You know, yeah. uh, I think uh, Leviathan Wakes, which is what the Expanse television show does yeah. a very good job of that as well, which is that could have been told in a medieval setting. Yeah, the entire absolutely. Expanse absolutely. could have been. I agree. I agree. But they happen to choose science fiction. But the story wouldn't have changed that much, no. which I think and is also an advice that it was, or something that I, I came to as a writer. Sorry. Uh, is that. Um, I'm not trying to give out answers. That, that gets pretty boring when somebody tells you what to think. <laughs> I try to give perspectives and uh, have you thought about this? And then you can sort of come up with whatever. And perhaps it's the same in gaming there. Uh, that you, I try to propose things. What if you see it this way? And then you, I leave the conclusions to you. I'm not telling somebody to think something. And I think that's all you can actually expect to do as a writer. Well, and it, now it's very clear why I think you've done a very good job of writing for games, because that's exactly, you know, what I love about Forbidden Lands is that the Forbidden Lands didn't tell me what story to tell. Um, yeah, it just yeah. gave me all the tools for me. T- and it's not even a story for me to tell. It's my players are telling the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I happen to be narrating it, <laughs> which I think is very interesting. I, I, I might have learned this view actually from writing games. Yeah, because that's the way you had to write it, because you don't know what they're going to do anyway. Yeah, yeah, you you can't you you don't you can't write the end because the end hasn't no, you, hasn't you happened propose yet. Problems and situations that okay, sorry, yep. I, I don't know how to solve it. That's not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so to kind of wrap things up, and this is something that I always like to touch on with any creators, um, are th- is there work out there that you love um, that, you know, directly or indirectly you think, you know, influences you? Um, so don't even think about the influence piece, though. Um, are there movies um, that, that you consider great? Are there books that you consider great? Stuff that um, you, not as a writer, but as a consumer, uh, love? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> the question is where to, which one? Where to start? I, I love those that are have their own... Uh, nerve their own view of things like uh, memento was a very good movie it's very it's one of a kind i like one of a kind things sure i read a book that i really like which is from georges perec a french writer called life and uh, what do you call it an instruction for life okay and it's really straight it's, it's written totally contrary to all advice <laughs> especially stephen king's so so um Hmm. The Expanse was a very good. I like the first book. I saw. I, I thought it kind of <laughs> drifted away. <laughs> you and I are very similar. I've given that advice to many people. Yeah. I say read Leviathan Wakes yeah. and then go watch the show. Yeah, exactly. Because the show it's is better. better. It's better. It's better. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It's very true. <laughs> very, very true. Um, Eric, I can't thank you enough, my friend. This was uh, this was wonderful <laughs> to sit down and to learn kind of uh, how you look at things um, and how that ends up translating into your writing and um uh it uh my, my i didn't know if my questions would be answered and i feel like they have been <laughs> yeah, right. um so i appreciate that if somebody wants to consume more of you or learn more about what you're doing where's a good place for them to go well in, in english it's, it's these games i suppose it's there is a presentation of my own my own books i mean my i wrote this uh series of novels four novels two two thousand three hundred pages in total so it's a big series Unfortunately, only in Swedish, and it's kind of hard to translate, I think. <laughs> oh, really? Why is that? Because I play around a lot with the language, like we started to talk about, and Swedish yeah. is very different from English in some aspects. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I hope that they get, will get translated someday, but... Um, well, who do I need to write to to make that happen? Who do I? Whose door do I need to knock on? Because you mentioned about you have to find a you have to find an English publisher that wants to publish them. <laughs> so if you can do that for me, I, <laughs> I will like it. That's very the much. favor I can return. <laughs> I, I hope now I, I will be start writing these novels now in the Forbidden Lands, and I hope they will be translated into Swedish pretty much uh, English pretty much right. That's away. where I was headed because I'll be very angry yeah, that, if that, they're that, not. That's one of my. That's part of the plan, of course. Good, 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 good. Um, well, wonderful. Uh, Eric, at some point, I might have to try to talk you into coming back on, maybe when uh, this new uh, West of Ravenland yeah, sure, uh, expansion sure. comes out, and we'll talk about that. I'll be happy to. Uh, but until then, thank you. Thank you. Howdy, friends. This is Craig from the future. So uh, we recorded this interview with Eric several months ago. Since then, their Kickstarter has come out. So the books that Eric and I talk about uh, as being worked on and not coming out yet Well, they've come out and you can grab them on their Kickstarter. I reached back out to Eric and let him know that I'd be dropping the episode right around the same time as the Kickstarter and asked maybe if he would come on now that he could talk a little bit more about these books. And that's exactly what he did. So sit back and enjoy this really short segment we recorded a few days ago where we can get a little bit more in depth about his most recent work. So listeners, this doesn't get to happen every day, but since Eric and I recorded what you just listened to, a little bit has happened. In fact, uh, right now, 
Free League, if you're listening to this when this episode is released, has got a brand new Kickstarter out there, and it happens to include two of the books that uh, Eric hinted at during our first (laughs) interview, but now that it's out there, we can uh, actually discuss it. So, Eric, for the listeners, they just got done hearing the whole first part of it, but for you and I, it's good to see you again. Yeah, it'll be some time. So um, you were very deft during the first interview about uh, not giving me too much information. You really couldn't talk about it. Uh, But now I'm going to make you spill the beans. Um, (laughs) We've got two books out. One is the Book of Beasts and one is the Blood March. I'm probably going to want to spend more time on the Blood March. So let's talk about uh, the Book of Beasts first. Um, So I'm going to quickly read the description. Uh, A bestiary you can play beautifully illustrated and filled to the brim with murderous monsters and lethal encounters. And listeners, you can scroll down right now. I've got a link to this Kickstarter. So I, I, this one surprised me a little bit, Eric. Um, Was this always in the works or um, where did this idea come from for the uh, bestiary? Yeah, I think, um, I think I heard about it perhaps February or so. So it's been um, for six months or so it's been planned. It's not been my, uh, you know, my, Concern. I wrote some stuff in there, uh-huh. but my main focus was on on the setting book. So, but I've known about this. So when um, so if, when I get my because I could not have backed this fast enough. Nobody's shocked about that. In fact, they made uh, a lot of my listeners made fun of me on Twitter about it. Um, if I when I get my book and I look through it, where where will I see you then? So where are your fingerprints in this book? You said you helped a little bit. Yeah, I don't remember to be honest. But <laughs> now the thing is this: I, I've been adding some monsters that we we, we first thought ah. will fit these into the Asseline expansion, and then we just okay, but these you can encounter anywhere. So let's put them in the the Beecher book instead. Gotcha. So, so it's 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 been you know back and forth. So it's not not that clear cut. But I, I have probably written some of those, and I you know I, I've seen the text and I've done some editing and so on. So. Yeah, that's good. And the one thing that was, I think, is neat, and uh, people can see this on the uh, the Kickstarter page, is that this isn't just a monster manual. Um, each one of these beasts, there's an extensive amount written about it, um, how to incorporate them in your books. You've got new random tables for your game of Forbidden Lands. I mean, it's really, um, it's something I didn't know I needed. Um, which is always fun when a company kind of kind of does that, puts out something that gets you excited, even though you didn't want to ask for. It. So let's talk about what you are excited about and what I'm super excited about. In the interview that people just got done listening to, we talked a little bit about at some point, we might get some more information about what happened out West. Next thing I know, we have got a huge book coming out, <laughs> which is Rivals the Bitter Reach um, and Raven's P- uh, Purge as far as... Um, breadth here so how long has this been you know in the works i think for about uh, basically uh, we started talking about it when when uh, raven's purge was completed so for two years or so but, but i only worked for it the last year more in a concentrated way so uh, it is it's been on the way for some time and similar to Bitter Reach and Raven's Purge, it's, it's, it's a campaign setting, right? It allows people to go to a different part or to an area of Forbidden Lands, and you've got um, a lot of uh, different adventure sites there, an overarching adventure um, or, or plot line that's there as well. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting um, in reading and doing a little bit of research about this, Eric, is my understanding the random encounters um, are slightly a little bit different in this book than in the Raven's Purge as far as how they're tied to the, the, the overarching plot a little bit more. Is that correct? 
Yeah, it, it came up as a, as a comment from from the the users, game masters, that they wanted the uh, the random encounters to be more tied into the campaign. So I listened to that and tried to do it that way, and I think it worked. So what I did, I I, I tried obviously tried to get these uh, random encounters different from each other, and then I thought. Well, we can have two covering this aspect and two covering that aspect. And I try to knit them in. And also that you can actually uh, meet some of the key players within the random encounters. So I try to knit them all together. And also, actually, the, the key players themselves are more uh, intertwined in the world. So, so you, can, you can approach... Uh, while it's all more fitting together... It's still not linear at all. It can end, you can play it either way in a lot of different, I think it's even more open perhaps than Raven's Purge, but more interconnected as, at the same time. No, that's great. It, um, it's funny because when I read that, I was like, you know, I will look back and I said, okay, I get it. Like the, the, the Raven's Purge random encounters, you know, aren't directly, you know, linked in with the other things in there. Um, but I found, I realized that I was doing that as a GM, right? So that I was putting a little bit of salt on some of those random encounters to tie them into what other things that were happening. So, yeah, that's what I hope people do, of course, because, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, which is great. Um, so let's go back then, Eric. At what point did you start to get a sense of what would be out West? Right. So now you've you've written the damn thing. But, um, you know, at some point, I'm sure it's like, OK, I'm going to deal with what's back there at some point or I have a kind of an idea of what's out there. Um, I'm trying to get a sense of the origin, like where the beginnings of this started to brew for you as a writer. Yeah. The, the thing is, when I write stuff, I've got this habit of putting hooks into into the material. So I, I at my blog, I described writing as sort of a chess player. I put out hooks and I put a place out things that I don't know how they will fit, but I know this is a good position. I will be, I, I will be able to use this later. So that, so what I did was I started reading all the old materials and just to see where is Asleen mentioned this country West. And I said, okay, so this is what, this is what must be in it. And then I started to spin from there, you know, okay, since I, this is mentioned, I have to have it this way. What, what will it actually be? Uh, this country was invaded by a demon horde 300 years ago. Uh, we don't know what happened after that. Some fugitives came at the same time, but then it was, the gate was closed. The Shadow Gate passed, which is uh, the connection between these two countries. And now it's opening up again. After Raven's Purge, what will we find there? So, so what will happen is that uh, the... the Pre-selected starting point is an adventure site just beyond the Shadowgate Pass from Raymondland, which is quite kind of a, a settler's area, like in the Golden. It's, it's like I, I modeled it on Deadwood, actually. Nice. I saw the I saw the Western series here, and it's an actual city, as, as you might know. Yeah. So I thought the same type of spirit there. Okay, this new land has opened up. We want to go there and see what can we make of it. Perhaps some horse people from Ravenland come back and think, we want to see what's left of our old, old country. We want to resettle there, see if we have any relatives left there and so on. So you can, you can pick a lot of different starting points. You, you, can, so you can start anywhere in, in this country if you want to, but then you have to adapt, of course. So the natural place is to start 
from 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 close to rating labs. Right, right. And you know, from my understanding, this could be an extension. So I'm running this for two different groups right now, and I, from my understanding, I could run this as an extension of the current games that I have running for either of them, or I could start a third group brand new in this in this absolutely, land. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and you can not, you can also be person born in this country, of course. Nice. And you can have all you can just hook up with any of a uh, number of agendas here. Beautiful. Now, um, there's what two years, two plus years between Ravens Purge and this, as far yeah, as your so. yeah. your writing, right? Two yeah. three years there. Um, what changes will I see as far as you know? this being the second big book for you for, for Forbidden Lands and what you've learned from, you know, the first book and things that you didn't get a chance to put in the first book you wanted to put here. Were there, am, am I going to see a, a change or a progression or a maturation for you as a writer in this world? Yeah, for one thing, we now have rules. We didn't have that when I wrote understanding before there were any rules. So, so that's a big difference. So I had to had to read a little about the rules, of course. I looked a lot at the bit reach, actually, more how it's structured, the, the book is structured, so I tried right. to follow that. I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't copy it, of course, but I, I used the structure. So uh, I think it's, it's a little different. Yes, it's a different focus than Raven's Purge. I, I noticed that Thomas uh, commented, I think, today that this is, Altogether different from Raven's Purge and Bitter Reach. So this, I try and I try not to do more of the same. I want to do something new because it also demuses me as a writer. I, I don't, you know, somebody actually aired the, uh, was afraid that this is just in the next uh, part of the franchise, and I, and I wrote this an answer that you can be sure that we put a lot of effort and thought into this, and it's not just the third installment of, of this franchise. This is something I'm, I hope to be proud of, and I hope you will like it as players <laughs> and game masters because it is something pretty new. And also, what I especially like is that I got in some twists of the original setting. That oh. uh, it's what, what it said. There's still ghosts, but perhaps it wasn't the whole truth. You know, it was like this. And I hope people will like that. You will see. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, I can understand that. I guess if. Um somebody who's not as familiar as I am with not only the work for Forbidden Lands, but pretty much anything for League has put out. I could see that, right? Is that we're just stamping out books and just pushing out books and Kickstarters at this point. Um, and I'm not, I don't even try to, to hide it. I'm, I'm just such a fan. I'm such a fan of not only your work with Free League, but at this point, I have I've yet to lose. Everything I've bought and that's coming out of Free League is is, is top quality. And it's to the point where uh, you'll appreciate this, Eric. Of course, I'm interviewing creators all the time. And one of the things that I like to ask at the end of the interview, and I think you and I had this discussion back in April when we had our interview. So I like to say, you know, what are you excited about? What is something that you haven't created that in Free League? Like, like so many other designers and creators out there are, are bringing up free league, but anyway, enough of the, uh, uh, blowing smoke. <laughs> um, so the one last thing I'd be curious about, Eric, um, especially now that you have a framework of work rules to work from, which you really didn't have when you were working on Raven's purge, um, how have adventure sites changed for you? Um, so when you think about what you, when you created the adventure sites for Raven's purge versus creating the adventure sites here, um, what, what was different for you and, um, what, what changed? I think they more fit together, like I said, like the key players and, and the random encounters. Also, the adventure sites fit together 
Mm. And uh, the thing is, I, I started more thinking about uh, this is a trilogy at least. Uh, Ravenland and then now Asleen and then Alderland, which is a country south of these two. So I now think uh, in the whole package there, what will happen next? So I sort of try to I try to build up a political situation that will spill over into Alderland eventually. So so you will have now some of the key plays are from Alderland actually in in, in this um, the blood marches and uh, yeah I, th- I think it's, it's, it's pretty much well together it's um, yeah. I, I, I can't really say too much because I will spoil it. I know. <laughs> this is exactly what we did in April. <laughs> what I do find fascinating, and you kind of hinted at this, and correct me if I've misunderstood you, it sounds like you plant seeds for yourself later. Like like it, like like when you're Absolutely. doing Raven's Purge, you put in some seeds, you're like, I don't know what they're going to grow into, but when when future Eric goes and reads it, it'll give him his, his, the prompts to go on. Absolutely. Is it, Absolutely. It, that's really fascinating to me. And now it sounds like you've done it again here and we won't, and you won't know what it means until later. No, no, I, that's the way I work actually when writing novels as well. That's so I start cool. Placing things, and I know that these might become useful. Some might not become useful. Then it's just a curiosity that you pass by and forget. But very often I go back and, you know, pick something that I planted earlier. And of course, as you know, for movies and books, if you as a reader or, or, or if you see a movie, if you get something, you, 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 you see that, okay, this showed up in, at the beginning and I didn't notice that. Now I see it. Then you think this, the writer, he knew this from start. I don't, and they probably didn't. Right. You, you get a feel for picking up things. That, uh, things fit together. It's much like we build our, our own world's history, actually. We interpret it afterwards. And then you, you do the narrative. But you can do that when you write as well. That's absolutely fascinating. Well, Eric, um, I got to thank you a second time, my friend. I, I told you I would trick you into coming on again. I, I don't think you realized it would be so quick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. And uh, guys, for those of you listening, now you're going to get the regular outro instead of yet another segment. Um, Eric, uh, it's good seeing you, my friend. All right. And for those of you that stuck around to the end listening, I appreciate it. Take care. Hey, did you hear that? You leveled up. You finished another episode of Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you want more from the third floor, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Head on over to our YouTube channel. It is packed with painting tutorials, gaming tips, battle reports, and role-playing actual plays. Did you enjoy this episode? Why don't you send a link to one of your friends so they can enjoy it too? Last but not least, write us a review on your podcatcher of choice. This helps us find listeners almost as cool as you. Hey, are you still here? Look, uh, the podcast is over, and you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers? Well, I mean, if you're here, might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast, too, while you're at it, on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care.